When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, a report on the nation's investigation of massive accounting fraud at the Pentagon. Dave Lindorf will have that story. Also, the Armenian Revolution, a small light of hope and progressive democratic change in a Europe increasingly shadowed by authoritarian and dictatorial forces, especially in most of the former Soviet bloc states of Eastern Europe. That's what Mark Cooper says. He spent months in Yerevan, where the elections on Sunday confirmed the victory of the revolutionaries. But first, Donald Trump has nominated a new attorney general. It's William Barr, who previously served as attorney general under George H.W. Bush. For comment, we turn to David Cole. He's the national legal director of the ACLU and legal correspondent for The Nation. His most recent book is Engines of Liberty, The Power of Citizen Activists to Make Constitutional Law. David Cole, welcome back. Nice to talk to you again, John. Well, a writer for The Atlantic made the case for William Barr. He made about three or four points. His argument was that it's better to have an attorney general who is, quote, steeped in the traditions and culture of the Justice Department than to have an acting attorney general who operates as the eyes and ears of a president who's attacking the institution. It's better to have an attorney general who's run the department before, and it's better to have an attorney general with a long-standing professional reputation to protect rather than someone like Matt Whitaker, who is basically a political hack dependent on Trump for everything. So William Barr is a lot better than Matt Whitaker. What do you think of that argument? Well, I think if you take Matt Whitaker as the bar, so to speak, virtually anybody uh, <laughs> will be an improvement on Matt Whitaker. So I'm not sure that it, it really confronts whether this is the man we want to be the chief law enforcement officer for the next two years. Well, let's look at the, the Justice Department after two years of Trump. What is the state of the Justice Department at this point? Well, I think Jeff Sessions essentially turned it into the Injustice Department. He did everything within his power to essentially renege on the Justice Department's priority, which is to uh, advance uh, and protect the civil rights of all Americans. Uh, so he was a, a vigorous defender of all of Trump's uh, anti-immigrant policies from the Muslim ban to family separation. He reversed uh, policies of the Justice Department that extended civil rights protections to transgender individuals and, uh, and, and gay and lesbian folks. He reversed the Justice Department's positions in several longstanding uh, voting rights cases that, 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 that challenged voter suppression, and instead he came in on the side of, uh, of voter suppression. He reversed virtually all of 
Eric Holder's reforms uh, of the criminal justice administration that were, you know, intended to reduce mass incarceration, to to be smart on crime, to exercise prosecutorial discretion in a humane way, uh, and instead, you know, instructed federal prosecutors across the country to charge defendants with the most serious charge available to them on the facts, regardless of any mitigating circumstances involving the individual. So, you know, he left it in very, very bad shape. Well, let's talk about William Barr's record. Let's start with the reason that Trump probably hired him, his record on executive power. Well, what we do know is not very encouraging. Bill Barr is and has been for decades a very strong proponent of the view that the president uh, has to have the power, untrammeled power, to remove uh, executive officials without restriction uh, from Congress. And that, of course, is exactly what the issue will be if Donald Trump seeks to get rid of Bob Mueller, who is investigating him for for possible collusion with the Russians in the 2016 election. Mueller right now is appointed pursuant to a a set of rules that limit the terms under which he can be uh, removed. But but, uh, Bill Barr thinks those kinds of limits are unconstitutional. He has a very, very broad view of the power of the executive, so broad that it was his views were relied upon by the George W. Bush uh, lawyers in arguing that President Bush could order torture of al-Qaeda suspects when uh, federal law, international law, and the Constitution all forbade it. And there's one other thing that's sort of my pet peeve on all this whole executive power history of William Barr. When he was attorney general for President George H.W. Bush, he recommended a presidential pardon for the Iran-Contra conspirators. Those pardons prevented a trial and ended investigation of the president's own role in breaking the law. That sort of points the way for Donald Trump to follow the example of George H.W. Bush by pardoning the people who might testify against him. Well, that's right. And, and those par- a number of those pardons that George H.W. Bush issued were pardons issued before there was even a criminal charge. Casper Weinberger uh, was was advance pardoned, essentially. Um, so, yeah, that yet another reason that uh, Donald Trump may have found William Barr to be a very, you know, a very nice choice. I, there there have been a number of reports that uh, that Donald Trump was actually actually interviewed William Barr to be his personal lawyer in the Mueller investigation. Uh, and if those turn out to be true, it, it may well be that Barr, ironically, uh, that Barr would have to recuse himself from the Mueller investigation, which is, of course, the only thing Jeff Sessions did that was right while he was attorney general and why uh, ultimately Donald Trump fired him, uh, that he recused himself from overseeing that investigation. There's a very strong argument that Barr, having interviewed with Trump to be his personal lawyer, shouldn't be overseeing the person who is investigating Trump on that very matter. You say Barr would have to recuse himself. Could you please explain the have to well, part of this? Well, I said there'd be a very, there's a very strong argument that he would have to. The, you know, the ethics rules generally require you to recuse as a government official from matters that you dealt with as a private, you know, before you, before you came into office. And so 
the, there's a there's a set of ethics rules that uh, requires recusal. It, it's enforceable by only by individuals. The, the individuals themselves make the recusal decisions. So Jeff Sessions was the person who decided that Jeff Sessions should be recused. Nobody else did, and Bill Barr would have to decide. But there's a there is an office in the in the Justice Department that uh, advises on these. Uh, matters and and uh, and I think the advice would be you, you, you have to recuse. I don't you know I don't know I don't know all the details and I think you know I think it would be incumbent upon the senators to find all the details. What were Bill Barr's communications with Donald Trump before uh, he uh, became you know un, uh, under consideration for Attorney General? And do those compromise his ability to be? Uh, to play it straight and be the nation's chief law enforcement ish- officer on an issue that affects uh, Donald Trump personally. We're interested in a lot of issues in addition to executive power. Where does Barr's stand on uh, on immigrants' rights? So on, on a whole range of issues, Barr has essentially been as bad as Jeff Sessions. Uh, on immigrants' rights, he defended the Muslim ban, said there was no plausible constitutional objection to the first Muslim ban. That Muslim, that ban was struck down by numerous courts uh, and ultimately, uh, uh, both in the district court level and on appeal, and ultimately Trump uh, withdrew it and, and substituted another ban because his lawyers convinced him it could not be defended in the courts. And yet Barr said there wasn't even a plausible ground for challenging its legality. He, he has defended the, the, the family separation policy. Uh, he's talked about how proud he is that Sessions went after rampant illegalities in the immigration system, even though, you know, when you look at the court decisions, the rampant illegalities in the immigration system that we've seen under Trump are those affected by the Trump administration itself. And what about criminal justice? What about civil rights? What about abortion rights? So he's he is he's uh, very clearly on record that Roe versus Wade should be overturned. He uh, argued for a constitutional amendment to the First Amendment uh, after the Supreme Court held that the First Amendment protects the right of citizens to burn the flag uh, and does not allow the government to to compel particular kinds of treatment of the flag. It's our flag, not the government's flag. He wanted to amend the First Amendment to, to overturn that decision. First Amendment has never been amended in, in the history of the Constitution. He uh, uh, opposed net neutrality, uh, one of the most important protections of uh, equal access to the Internet, a critical aspect of free speech. He, uh, uh, he, he was a strongly praised Jeff Sessions for denying civil rights protections to transgender folks. So, and on criminal justice reform, he's really, he's of the old school. You know, he's really of the same old school that Jeff Sessions was. And that's the school, the tough on crime school, that there is no penalty harsh enough for criminals and that we should throw the book at everyone who has been who gets caught up in the criminal justice system without regard to mitigating circumstances without regard to the fact that we lead the uh the world in per capita incarceration without regard to the racial uh the 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 horrific racial disparities that plague that system in fact in when he was in the justice department as as AG he oversaw an effort to write a report uh which was called the case for more incarceration. 
in which he argued that, you know, whereas everyone else was saying, you know, we, we just have too many people locked up, over 2 million people locked up. He said, no, the problem is we don't have enough people locked up. So he's really caught in a time warp on criminal justice uh, at, a, at a time when there's a real, real bipartisan consensus uh, across the aisle that the criminal justice system is too harsh, there are too many people locked up, it's wasteful, uh, and we need to be smart on crime, not tough on crime. He's in that old tough on crime mold. So confirmation hearings for William Barr are coming up. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, told the New York Times, quote, Mr. Barr must commit under oath before the Senate to two important things. First, that the special counsel's investigation will proceed unimpeded. And second, that the special counsel's final report will be made available to Congress and the public immediately upon completion, close quote. Are those two things enough, do you think? I think those two things are absolutely critical. The senators need to ensure that William Barr was not hired to obstruct justice. And and so uh, we need to know the facts and we need to make sure that Mueller is able to get the facts. But I would I would say more than that is is, is required. We should we should have commitments from William Barr that he will um, defend civil rights, that he will not seek to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade. Seventy percent of Americans recently said they don't want Roe versus Wade overturned. Um, he should be he should be uh, required to commit to the project, the bipartisan project of of reducing mass incarceration, not adding to uh, really one of the most embarrassing aspects of of the American legal system. Uh, so so no, I don't think it's sufficient. I think it's important, very important what uh, what Chuck Schumer is 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 seeking to demand, and and I, and I would emphasize those two things because I do worry that he was picked uh, out of Trump's thought that he may actually do his bidding on this. But I think there's a lot more that senators ought to be concerned about and ought to be questioning Bill Barr about. David Cole, he's national legal director of the ACLU and legal correspondent for The Nation. Thank you, David. It's always great to have you on the show. Great. Thanks a lot. Now it's time to talk about a massive accounting fraud uncovered at the Pentagon. The Nation has just published an expose written by Dave Lindorf. He's an investigative reporter and longtime contributor to The Nation. He's written several books, most recently The Case for Impeachment, and he's the founder of the online newspaper This Can't Be Happening. Dave Lindorf, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, John. Well, the Pentagon receives 54 cents out of every dollar in federal appropriations, and Congress requires all federal departments and agencies to submit to annual outside audits of their finances. The private firms that audited Defense Department spending submitted their audit report last month. What did they report? Well, first of all, it took them, the Pentagon, 28 years to finally uh, face an audit. They stonewalled for all that time and just wouldn't accommodate an audit. They wouldn't do anything to make their books auditable. And the Congress finally just, you know, appropriated $900 million and said it's going to happen. And so these auditors, 1,200 auditors, have poured over the books for the whole year. And uh, November 15th, they reported that basically they threw up their hands and said it can't be done. And said uh, 
that there were just too many problems to be able to do it, and they were submitting a list of probably thousands of uh, deficiencies that will have to be fixed before the thing can really be audited. So your uh, investigation for the nation concluded that there was a, quote, gigantic unconstitutional accounting fraud deliberately cooking the books to mislead Congress close quote. Let's start with the gigantic part. How much Defense Department money uh, did you find cannot be accounted for? Well, I'm not going to take credit for finding the total. That was a uh, professor of public accounting, Mark Skidmore at Michigan State University, who last year heard a report about uh, some weird numbers from a uh, sample audit they did of the Army budget in the fiscal for fiscal year 2015 uh, that had a 600 6.5 trillion dollar entry in it and he thought what <laughs> you know so he decided to look at all the audits that the Pentagon's internal investigative unit the office of inspector general does like they sample a part of the Pentagon's accounting each year internally and go over it. Uh, Usually it's like one branch of the service, you know, the Marines, then the Air Force, then the Army, then the Navy, and so on. And they publish those results and what they find uh, on their website. So he looked at, uh, from from 1998 through 2015, all of those reviews of parts of the Pentagon's accounting by the OIG and found a total of $21 trillion in adjustments, what they called adjustments, that were unsupported by any kind of ledger entries to explain why that number was there. So that that's where the number came from. $21 trillion. Now, is this is this waste? Is this like buying a million helmets when we only needed ten thousand, or is this fraud? No, this by is something. The... This is something different. This is a, this is actually accounting fraud because the numbers, at least this is what I got from my sources, uh, some of whom were pretty significant people who were going on the record. They said is that these numbers are basically made up by the green eye shade guys that the Pentagon has in this uh, big facility called the uh, Defense Finance Accounting Service in Indianapolis. The internal jargon for these things are plugs. They call them plugs, which is not a, an accounting term. <laughs> and, and they they plug these numbers in to to match current year accounts with prior years and they also put them in i'm told to basically uh in the words of uh, chuck spinney who's a you know famous whistleblower from the 1980s he says it's designed to paralyze congress and i would add the media for the same reason because they're so such bizarre numbers no people have been consistently afraid to even ask about them because it makes you look like a kook so me having no self-respect, I decided to question them. <laughs> so, uh, thank you for that. Uh, I'm still, uh, I'm still uh, hung up on this twenty-one trillion dollars. Does that mean there's twenty-one trillion dollars available in Pentagon accounts that could be spent on something else? 
No, it's not real money. Now, Mark Skidmore and I have an intellectual disagreement on this. He is saying that since they won't tell us what it is and why it is, they won't give a good explanation for the numbers, we have to assume it could be anything. And he talks about secret money perhaps coming in through being printed from the Fed the way they printed money for the uh, too-big-to-fail banks in the fiscal crisis and stuff, which is not totally unreasonable. But I, I, what I've been told, and I believe my sources, is that it's not real money. It's fake numbers that are designed to confuse, that are uh, obfuscatory, uh, and that have had the effect of having Congress look at the budgets and saying, well, they spent all the money we gave them, we got to give them more, and it's kind of an escalator to increase the budget every year without any justification. Your article on all of this for The Nation has a a wonderful correction, one of my all-time favorite corrections at the end. It says, an earlier version of this article included a mention of $6.5 billion in plugs <laughs> yeah. in 2015. Now, what was it there that needed correction? It was supposed to be trillion. <laughs> <laughs> it should have been trillion. Yeah, right. It's trillion. Got, off by a thousand times. <laughs> $21 trillion. How much is $21 trillion? That's what it's all about, John, is is that the numbers are so enormous that even when I was writing about it, you know, my finger just couldn't do it. <laughs> so it's like, you have to say, no, no, this is trillions. And, and tw- just to give people a sense of $21 trillion, that's the size of the entire national debt accumulated by the U.S. over over the life of the country. It's far and away more than we've spent on the Pentagon uh, in, since World War II. So we're talking about enormous amounts of money. And it, it has been going on, we know, for at least the years that Mark looked at back to 1998 and actually quite a bit earlier. And these are only the reports that the OIG did of small parts of the Pentagon budget each year. So there's a lot of parts of the budget each year that they didn't even look at that also have these plugs in them. I know you, you've asked the Pentagon to comment on your findings about massive accounting fraud. What did they tell you? Well, actually, they wouldn't respond. I, I got no official figures uh, to talk to me on the record. I did get one background conversation with a uh, undersecretary ranking person that I can't name and can't quote. Uh, but the answers that I was getting were through, you know, press people, uh, de- defense press people. They've they've been saying the problem they have is legacy systems, you know, old computers and systems and old software that don't talk with each other between different branches and units of the Pentagon and that are you know really outdated. And and I, I would say to that, well, they say, they've been using that excuse for 26 years, which takes you back to when I was still using a K-Pro computer, <laughs> and I'm sure they were using, you know, IBM uh, laptop PCs or, what, or desktop PCs, but in 26 years, they've been getting all this money for things like F-35s and F-22s and aircraft carriers and stuff, and they certainly could have bought a couple of Watson computers and done the whole job, but they don't want to do that. So you say the motive here is is uh, to mislead Congress, but 
isn't Congress always happy to give the Pentagon what it wants? Usually, in fact, they give them more than more than what they want. So why do they need to mislead Congress? What's in it for well, it's them? It's not just Congress. They're misleading the press, too. And, and, and it's been working because by having these numbers, you know, this is a really interesting thing. I got into this story in 2016 because I also, like Mark Skidmore, saw that uh, $6.5 trillion figure in the alternative media. And, um, and I thought, this is really weird, and I don't know what it is, but how come there's nothing in the mainstream press about this $6.5 trillion in the Army budget, which is only $122 billion? That, that's got to be worth an article, right? So I did a piece for FAIR, uh, the you know Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, uh, which got a lot of attention. And also, uh, we're, I did get a response from someone in the OIG's office, the head of their uh, public affairs office told me uh, that, well, she said, this is really normal. You know, we make an adjustment to get the books to balance. For example, in the Army budget, we had uh, a total of uh, $0.2 billion in accounts receivable, and we adjusted that to $98 billion. And I said, wait a minute, <laughs> that's not rounding. That's like, you know, that's 40 times larger. And, and you know, it, it was, that was not an answer and uh, 400 times larger, I'm sorry. And um, that was her answer. And so, you know, the, but that was not reported uh, in any mainstream press. Nobody talked about the $6.5 trillion. And even today, you know, we've gotten a tremendous response at The Nation with this article online already, uh, except not a single corporate mainstream media news organization has contacted us. And the only way it got reported was when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted about it and said $21 trillion in, in possibly missing Pentagon money, $32 trillion to cover Medicaid for all, Medicare for all for 10 years, you know, that would cover two-thirds of it. And she got a whole column written in the Washington Post condemning her and giving her four Pinocchios. But in that article, they quoted the $21 trillion figure. They, they said the nation had it right, that it was not real money. But I have to say, that's the first time that that number or any of the plugs has been mentioned in the mainstream press. Uh, so kudos to Ocasio. Dave Lindorf, his expose of the Pentagon's massive accounting fraud is the cover story in the new issue of The Nation. You can read it at thenation.com. Dave, thanks for your great work on this. Well, thank you. Now it's time for something completely different. The news from Armenia, which held elections on Sunday. Before the election, Armenia had the first insurrection in a post-Soviet state that legitimately boiled up from the streets, free of influence from outside forces. That's what Mark Cooper says. He's a contributing editor at The Nation and a retired professor of journalism at the USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. He's traveled the world covering politics and culture for dozens of publications, ranging from Playboy and Rolling Stone to the LA Times and the Times of London, He's also been a reporter and a producer of news documentaries for CBS News, The Christian Science Monitor, and PBS Frontline. 
He's written many books. His book, Pinochet and Me, a Chilean anti-memoir, is out now in paperback. And he founded and hosted the predecessor of this podcast, Radio Nation, which he ran for 10 years and which at its peak was aired on more than 100 public and community radio stations. Mark Cooper, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you, John. Well, you call Armenia a small light of hope and progressive change in a Europe increasingly shadowed by authoritarian and dictatorial forces, especially in most of the former Soviet bloc states of Eastern Europe. We want to talk about the election results from Sunday, but first, let's start with Armenia before this revolt started. What was Armenia like politically after the fall of the Soviet Union? You know, I was not there in uh 1991, when it gained its formal independence or declared its formal independence. And I've been told that there was a short period of elation. But really, for the last 25 years, without being sarcastic about it, I'd say the the outstanding feature of Armenia was sort of a national depression. I'm not talking about an economic depression. I'm talking about a psychological one. The Armenians are very homogenous uh, people, very industrious, uh, generally high educated. The Soviets had turned it into sort of a science center, so there's a lot of scientists roaming around. But politically, it was what you call a sort of a hybrid regime. It was on paper a constitutional democracy, but there was a thin crust of uh, economic and political oligarchs who really had an iron grip on the entire country. Unlike some other examples, it was not a particularly repressive place. It was not a police state, and it wasn't a place where uh, people were, you know, disappeared on a regular basis, etc. But the police were definitely corrupt. And more important than that, uh, the political system was completely and totally locked up. There was no real significant opposition able to operate in the parliament. The press was all owned by the state or by uh, other oligarchs that engaged in radical self-censorship. And being a landlocked country of three million people, with its border closed to Turkey and its border closed to Azerbaijan in a frozen war, a frozen conflict since 1988 with Azerbaijan over disputed territory, the country's main export was people. The biggest problem they faced was depopulation because it's a beautiful place, but uh, there weren't many jobs and uh, there just uh, was a glass ceiling Wherever you went, if you weren't connected, you were out. And in a small country like that, and it is very small, made social mobility and even basic economic entrepreneurship very, very difficult. And then all of this changed over the last year. Tell us how this whole thing got started. Well, you know, there's been a decade of of eruptions, of short uh, over a series of issues that were mostly incohate and unorganized but spontaneous, sort of like the Occupy movement in the United States, over certain issues, usually around electoral fraud 
but also around electricity rates and things like that. And you'd have three, four, or five days of protest, generally peaceful. A few dozen people would get arrested, and that would be it. But there's been sort of a building of that. The explosion that the country's currently going through was set off in April when the two-time president, uh, Serge Sargassian, who was, you know, the embodiment of oligarchic rule, uh, had changed the Constitution so that when he was termed out in March or April, he could then move to a newly empowered position of prime minister as opposed to president. That then assumed, under the new Constitution, all executive power. And was, and as it in a parliamentary system was, uh, elected by the uh, by the parliament, right? Which his Republican Party completely and totally controlled. Well, that threw a match. That was really the the straw that broke the camel's back, and people did not want this sort of indefinite rule by Sargassian. So this unassuming but very charismatic, lifelong opposition activist, a 43-year-old editor and journalist named Nicole Pashinian, went out tilting against windmills and announced that he would march with whoever would follow him from the second city of Armenia to the capital to protest this elongation of power by the oligarchs. And he began a march with, I don't think, more than a few dozen people. And it took him uh, a couple of weeks. And by the time he got to Yerevan, the capital, there were thousands of people following him. And when he got into Yerevan, all of a sudden there were 10,000 and 20,000 and 100,000 people in a city of only a million. So... You know, almost every able adult was in the street completely peacefully, no violence, almost in a carnival atmosphere. And for 11 days, they occupied the city and they wow. just did not move. And he would, Pashinian would, you know, wander around and make these speeches, etc. And the government had no idea what to do. The military and police showed no interest in shooting their own people. And uh, there was a fantastic moment where, uh, after 11 days uh, of this, the, the prime minister, Sargassian, suggested that he and Pashinian meet to negotiate. And Pashinian said, sure, but it has to be an open negotiation. So it was public and it was on television and it was like wow. on a stage. People wow. could see it. And Sargassian says to Pashinian, okay. What do we have to talk about? What Let's set an agenda. And Pashinian was funny. He said, well, it's really easy. There's only one point on the agenda. It's like, what are you going to resign? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, that was it. He got up and walked away. And uh turned out that a couple of days later, the parliament that is solidly, was solidly anti-Pashinian, voted to make Pashinian prime minister because it was either that or civil war. And uh, that's how the, if you will, the revolution came to pass. The astounding part is that since May, 
And again, the details of this are very, very uh, complicated, but the bottom line is that for seven months, Tashinian has governed without a majority. And at any moment, the parliament could have taken him down with one vote of no confidence. But they were afraid because when they tried back in October, which was already four months after the revolt, they tried to monkey around with the law that would permit the elections that happened on Sunday. Kashinian put out one Facebook message, and within uh, an hour, there were 20,000, 30,000 people in front of the parliament in the street. Wow. Uh, you know, ready to storm it. So for seven months, Kashinian was able to leverage his popular support to hold these guys back and stage Armenia's first really free election in almost 30 years on Sunday. And Pashinian won 70 or 71% of the vote. His allies won another 15% of the vote. And uh, the Republican Party, this is amazing, that had governed as a monopoly for 25 years, got less than 5% of the vote. Wow. <laughs> but it shows you how how radically unpopular they were. So what kind of revolution is this? What are the politics of Nicole Pashini? Right. Well, that's the million-dollar question. It's easy to say what it isn't. It is not an anti-Russian uprising as it was in Georgia or the Ukraine in many ways. I think the youth of Armenia are very pro-Western. The older people tend to be a little bit more sympathetic to the Russians. But Armenia is inextricably economically and militarily tied to Moscow. There's just no way around that. So it was not uh, an anti-Russian deal. Uh, It was not something that was encouraged, uh, financed, uh, supported overtly or covertly by uh, the State Department or AID or any of the other sort of uh, American influences in Eastern Europe or the or the economic or the European Union for that matter. And its primary stated goals are to do away with corruption and to institute a functioning democracy. The anti-corruption campaign already began in the last six months and has been quite effective given the lack of parliamentary power that Pashinian had until then. An ex-president was arrested. Several corrupt oligarchs were arrested. There were raids on banks and some corrupt police officials overnight because I was there shortly before the revolution and then for a month afterward. Overnight, the traffic police stopped collecting money from motorists. So the real question, the bottom, bottom line here, is that if you put this into ideological terms, the real dilemma these guys face is that the country desperately needs foreign investment. You know, it's poor, and it needs to build wealth, and it needs to open up those borders, and it needs investment and trade. On the other hand, you know, 40% of the population lives in poverty, and 
while it wasn't put into ideological terms, a lot of the rhetoric of, about the revolution was that there was just too many poor people and too much inequality and that it was time for poor people to get their due. There was no explicitly socialist rhetoric because after 70 years of uh, Soviet rule, uh, that's not real popular in a place like Armenia, at least the, the sort of rhetoric that comes with it. The programs might be more popular, but not not the notion of turning it into a socialist republic. So it's anybody's guess at this moment. I think the best way to describe it is that it's that the revolution is about democracy, transparency, for sure, anti-corruption, for sure, and probably some sort of social democracy, some sort of state intervention in the you know, social insurance system, in the welfare system, in education, and in unions, and a lot of theory that some of us on the left have uh, sort of gets immediately challenged because you put yourself in, in Fashinian shoes and say, well, what do we do? <laughs> you know, uh, how do you maneuver this between investment and welfare? How do you maneuver between the East and the West? How do you keep the Russians, you know, not going crazy? And how do you keep a leash on the oligarchs that you've pushed out of power? It's, it's not an easy job. Mark Cooper, he wrote about Armenia's revolution for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Mark. Great to have you on the show. Uh, you're welcome. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks about Bob Knight, the legendary coach of men's basketball at Indiana and why high school All-Americans were leaving his team. That story is told in a new film, The Last Days of Night. Dave talks with the director, Robert Abbott. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.